Thanks, David. Um, so my talk is uh, introducing you uh, to biosimilars and IBD. Where do we stand? So what is a biosimilar? Biosimilars are biopharmaceutical products developed to mimic an innovator product as closely as possible once the patent protection has expired. Uh, biosimilars and innovator products are typically therapeutic proteins for which an exact replica is hard to achieve in practice due to the complex nature of the protein structures. So when you're introducing this concept to your patient in practice, this is the example I've been using recently. I, I term the innovator product as the Mona Lisa and a biosimilar as an artist's rendition of the bios of the innovator. So unless you're an art critic, you wouldn't know which one was which. So just as a poll, which one thinks the Mona Lisa is on the left? Which one thinks it's on the right? So you don't really know which one it is. It's the one on the left. So why biosimilars? So biosimilars are ushered in with the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Some of the reforms included the introduction of a new abbreviated licensure pathways for cheaper biologics. Uh, again, because biologics are so complex, you cannot make a generic, so they were termed biosimilars. And the goal was simply to pro provide more affordable access to biologic medications. Several products have either been FDA approved or have received an endorsement for approval as being non-interchangeable biosimilars. And we're going to come back to that term in a second. Um, the biosimilars are anticipated to reduce cost savings for systems and payers, but the impact at the patient level is still unclear. Uh, the first biosimilar approval is Phil Grastom with a 15% discount. And I'm going to give you some examples and projections of what type of discounts we might see. So this is a RAND analysis, and it's, very, it's a complicated table, but I'm going to focus you here um, in the bottom. So the first row is looking at presumed market share. So if you presume a 25% market share with a 20% reduction in price, that would generate $30 billion in savings. So it can potentially have a very, very large impact. These are the approved products to date. For gastroenterologists, we currently have to deal with two approved biosimilars of infliximab, but there are more coming, uh, including those for adalimumab. So this is a complicated slide, but I'm going to break it down. This is another simple way you can explain this to patients. So think about an aspirin. Aspirin is a very small molecule that does not include proteins, so it's very easy to replicate. So if you're going to do an analogy, the aspirin here would be the bicycle. What about something like EPO or GCSF? That is a protein, and it's much more complicated than aspirin. It's 20,000 plus Daltons, so taking it back to chemistry. And the analogy here would be, it would be a race car. So what about anti-TNF and other monoclonals? They're very, very complex with additional glycosylation to the proteins. So the analogy here would be it's a space shuttle. So you could see why it's very difficult to make an exact copy. What are the requirements to establish biosimilarity? They are not based on clinical trials typically. We'll go over that again in a second. But they have a heavy focus on preclinical data uh, PK and so forth, much less emphasis on clinical trials. So there's some, another, another uh, thing that people will bring up is 
differences batch to batch of innovator products. So for example, 1998 infliximab is slightly different but comparable to 2008 infliximab. That's very different than trying to establish biosimilarity and that's because the company that makes the innovator product has all the proprietary information in making that. They have quality controls and so forth. So don't confuse when someone, when someone says comparability and biosimilarity, they're very different. So you need to know about indication extrapolation because that's how biosimilars for the most part have been approved. So monoclonal antibody is approved for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, Crohn's disease, and rheumatoid arthritis. With appropriate justification, the, in a, the biosimilar company applies to the FDA to do a trial in one of the indications. If that trial is successful, it can be extrapolated across other indications. So typically, companies are picking the most sensitive indications like psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis. They're not typically using Crohn's and ulcerative colitis as the first trial uh, to prove efficacy. I mentioned that you have, they have to provide adequate justification. A couple other key points here. You can only do indication extrapolation if the trial is done for an approved indication, so you couldn't do it off-label. Uh, it has to be the same mechanism of action, um, and I mentioned already the sensitive indication, and they're assessing the same things we would in any clinical trial, efficacy, safety, and for monoclonals, immunogenicity. Some other terms you need to know. Substitution. So substitution is the ability of a pharmacist to substitute one medicine for another, and that can include an innovator product with a biosimilar. The ability to do this is governed by local and other regulations on the pharmacist. This can, however, be automatic or involuntary, so the patient or the provider does not have to prove if the, if the biosimilar is termed interchangeable. And to date, none of the biosimilars have been termed interchangeable. We already went over this, so in the sake of time, we're gonna skip this slide. So, as you're thinking about switching a patient from an innovator product to a biosimilar, what are your concerns? And the concerns for these monoclonals is the same concerns we have every day, is immunogenicity. So the thought being that if the biosimilar product is slightly different in some way, if there's a slight change in glycosylation, that can take you from a state of immune tolerance, which is where we want you to be, to a state of immunogenicity with worsening of a disease and potential reactions to the drug. So David has, has keyed this term, non-medical switching. So non-medical switching applies to biosimilars. So um, in patients that are on well-tolerated adequate therapy, a non-medical switch is typically done for cost savings or patient preference. So the classic example is a patient's doing well on infliximab but hates coming in for infusions and asks Dr. Rubin to switch him to adalimumab so he can do self-injection. That's a non-medical switch, but the same thing would occur if you were gonna go from infliximab to the biosimilar version. What, are the, what do our scientific societies say about non-medical switching? I'm not gonna go over all of this, but let's highlight what the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation emphasizes, and they are not opposed to a single switch from an innovator product to a biosimilar, but they do oppose multiple switches unless the product has been deemed interchangeable. 
So I think that's a very reasonable stance. The other societies that are mentioned here, the American College of Rheumatology, the Amer American Society of Clinical Oncology, and the American Academy of Dermatology essentially emphasize that the choice should be up to the patient and provider, which I agree with, but it's not necessarily realistic. And the other emphasis here is on educating the patient about the biosimilar and giving them ample time to consider this before switching, which I think is reasonable and practical. So there have been a number of observational studies. This is a meta-analysis recently published of 11 studies in over 800 patients. I want to focus you on two parts of the slide. In the second and third column, you're looking at patients that are receiving the drug for the first time. So these are non-switch patients. They're just getting induction therapy with the biosimilar. And you can see response rates approach, approaching 80% for Crohn's disease and 75 to 80% for ulcerative colitis in both the short term and six months. Column four and five are the switch patients. So those are the ones that are stable in infliximab and are switching over to the biosimilar. And you're looking at six month and one year sustained response rates. And they're quite good, about 80% for Crohn's disease and 90% in ulcerative colitis. So pretty good observational data that switching patients or starting patients de novo on a biosimilar is safe and effective. So the North Switch trial was in one of your ARS questions. This was a study uh, funded by the Norwegian government across multiple autoimmune indications. It was a one-year trial, a randomized controlled trial. Patients were either randomized to stay on the originator product or the biosimilar. You're looking here at the per-protocol analysis, which is a, just a little over 400 patients. Crohn's patients and ulcerative colitis patients made up about 50% of the population. Overall, you can see no significant difference in flare rates between those that stayed on the originator and those that switched to the biosimilar. If you get into the weeds here a little bit and you look at the Crohn's patients, you see that those that remained on infliximab, the relapse rate was about 20%, and those that switched to the biosimilar it was about 36.5%, which was not significantly different, but was certainly trending in that direction. With the ulcerative colitis patients, there was too small of a sample size to really make a determination. So this is a randomized controlled trial, a two-part trial. The first part is in bio-naive patients. It's double-blind, randomized controlled, over 200 patients that were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to the innovator or biosimilar infliximab. These were all bio-naive patients with symptomatic Crohn's. They got standard induction and maintenance dosing. There was no dose escalation. There was not therapeutic drug monitoring. And those that did not respond at week 14 were withdrawn. At week 30, patients were then re-randomized to either stay on the product which they originally received or to do a one-time switch to the alternate product. And I'm going to show you the induction um, study results as well as the switch results. So this is the week 6, week 14, and week 30 results before the re-randomization. Infliximab here is in blue, and I guess that's orange for the biosimilar. You can see fairly nice clinical remission rates up to week 30. I think that's about what we'd expect in clinical practice. Now this is the switch data, which is a little more complex. So patients that stayed on the biosimilar in blue 
switchers from biosimilar to infliximab are in orange, gray are those that stay on infliximab, and yellow are infliximab switched to biosimilar. And you can see at one year that the rates of clinical remission are equal amongst the four groups. So very reassuring that a one-time switch is efficacious. What about drug levels? This was also one of the ARS questions, so I have two slides addressing this. The first addresses whether a level of the innovator product is similar to the biosimilar product, and the answer here is clearly yes. So you can see the concentrations, one, three, seven, and 10, and you can see the various products correlate quite nicely. So we think that an infliximab level will equal the same level as a biosimilar level. This is looking at antibodies, basically showing the same thing, that there's a tight correlation between antibodies to the innovator product as well as to antibodies to the biosimilar. So uh, you can use the therapeutic drug assays that we're doing now with the biosimilar products as well. So in conclusion, biosimilars are highly similar to the innovator biologic products, and the primary design of these is to decrease costs and increase access. When we talk about decreasing costs, we're talking about decreasing costs for payers and decreasing costs for health systems that are using these products. The impact of the cost on the patient is not known, although given the very generous copay programs that these companies have, it's probably a minimal effect. Um, whether this increases access and makes it easier to get biologics or to step through to biologics is, is completely unclear to me. Currently, there are two available anti-TNF biosimilars, although that is going to increase, so there will be more of these compounds to deal with. I think we can clearly say that observational and controlled trials in IBD demonstrate efficacy and safety of biosimilars and one-time switches from the innovator to biosimilar and vice versa in the latter trial I showed you. Now, these are some of the questions that Dr. Rubin asked me to address. So patients with antibodies to infliximab or those that have had severe, severe AEs to infliximab, like an infusion reaction, should not receive the biosimilar product. It's basically a highly similar version of the other drugs. So switching to that, you're going to experience the same AEs that you had with the innovator compound. In a patient who has a primary non-response to another anti-TNF, so adalimumab, proper induction, maintenance therapy, not responding, good drug levels, switching to the biosimilar is probably not going to be effective, just like switching to the innovator compound would not be effective. What about your DEFCON 1 patients that have been so difficult to control and you finally have them there? Or your woman in pregnancy who's at 20 weeks and your health system wants to switch, what do you do? I think you have to have some judgment in those cases, and I think there can be, at times, a compelling reason that you would argue to keep your patient on the innovator compound, although that's mostly, I think, our irrational brain and not the rational brain. Assessment of drug and anti-drug levels are similar. Uh, what, how do you prepare a patient for switching? I think David's going to go into this in more detail in his talk. So we've done this at the University of Maryland. We've done a wholesale switch to the biosimilar. Happy to talk about why we did that after. We had a three-phase process. So the first phase is we gave patients education about the biosimilars. We gave them a little trifold 
um, so that they could talk to the infusion nurses about the biosimilar product. We then sent them a letter stating that we were planning to switch patients in the next 90 days, stressing the importance of seeing their provider if they had any questions. So we gave patients, I think, ample time to meet with the provider beforehand, and then we made a switch. So I think that's a very rational, staged approach to switching. Um, the question is, should you confirm deep remission before the switch? I think this is sort of irrelevant because we're confirming deep remission after we start treatment anyway. So if you've confirmed already that the patient's in deep remission, I haven't pragmatically done this with all the patients we switched. It would make my chief happy. I would generate lots of RVUs, but I'm not sure it's completely necessary. An alternative might be to get a calprotectin and confirm that it's really low. And then the impact on cost savings overall as well as at a patient level is still unclear. Thank you very much.